0: I had an aunt who was working as an artist as I was growing up, and she showed me it was possible. Yeah. And great. that it was a it was something you could choose to do. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And I just had to wait until.
1: Welcome
2: to the Stolen Hours podcast: conversations with known or unknown creatives across the arts. Guests share what they create and the backstories that have made them who they are today. Listen in to help support the community of creators and to find some inspiration of your own. The following is episode 27. The visual artist, Liz Mitchell. Thank you for clicking in another episode. If you missed our last little sneak in there on Monday, we released the bonus episode with Paul Rosevere, and he does a pod performance where he pre- presents his latest song. So check that out. Um, enjoy the, the live recordings there that we did with him as he talked about his music and his life as a musician and uh, yeah, some of the stories behind the songs, too. Today, enjoy this uh, episode. Liz Mitchell is a great visual artist. Definitely check out her work. And enjoy the, uh, the episode itself. Uh, if you go to www.thestolenhourspodcast.com, you'll see all of our past episodes, as well as the uh, links to everybody's art, whatever they're doing, um, on that website there. So you'll get links directly to even Instagrams and whatnot. So for Liz's, you'll find the same. And check out the back catalog. Enjoy it all. Today I welcome Liz Mitchell to the podcast. Liz is a multimedia artist who experiments with a broad range of materials and processes, including paper, plastic, paint, printmaking, and sculpture, to create books and collages that are multi-layered, both in content and construction. In 1988, she started a jewelry and home accessories business and began showing her work at at national craft shows, both wholesale and retail. Initially, she was working two other jobs while getting her business off the ground, and in her stolen hours, she was making her artwork. At this point in her life, Liz makes uh, artwork full time as a fine artist, creating fascinating content that taps into themes of transcendence, human history, and storytelling through textured, intricate bookmaking, sculpture, and installations. She exhibits and sells her original creations around the world. Um, She's got so much backstory here, too. I just wanted to highlight a couple things. Um, From 2008 to 2013, she worked as the board chair for the Printmaking Center of New Jersey, just being a servant amongst her. Creative life, and her work has been exhibited throughout the world: Estonia, Egypt, Costa Rica, Mexico, Lithuania, um, and most recently Saint Leonard de Noblat at the Mulan Dugat paper mill. Um, so cool to just have Liz here today. I met her in 2009, as she confirmed at the William Patterson um, University. I think it was the Ben Sean Galleries, and I'm mm-hmm. intrigued by her work and excited by your work and uh, just kind of been following through the years. So good to have you here in 2021 on my podcast. Well, Liz, thanks thank so much for, for having here. me. It's Awesome. That's awesome. So I, what I did not introduce was kind of some of the, uh, in 2004, you know, your experience going to the Shambhala Buddhist Meditation Center. I'd love to hear about that first. Just kind of talk about your experiences there and how you find inspiration in meditation and really, uh, just uh, compassionate leadership programs. I, I see that listed too. So I'd love to hear about that first.
0: Sure. Um, that was a really interesting experience. Um, they were um, holding a dot tune, which was a month long meditation um, program. And they allowed uh, a certain number of people to come and just spend a week there. So I didn't spend the whole month. Um, but it was a really uh it was a really interesting experience and um, inspiring and sort of led me onto this path of um, how to walk more lightly and how to um, how to just um get through life in a way that was less um Maybe confrontational, more um, just an easier way to go through life. So I went and I stayed for the week. um, And it was, you know, three days of silent, uh, silence, you know, Mm. um, and other times doing walking meditations and then doing sitting meditations. And what I took away from that was. this opportunity to um, not so much uh change the world around me but to change me in the world mm. and um and that's led to this whole other path that I've been on um, using uh a, a Buddhist meditation and training to to get through the day
2: nice nice, and so has that um I know that's not too far away from some of the content of your work. And, you know, there's the storytelling in your work, you know, ranging from your great-grandfather where, where he built, helped build the cathedral at, uh, at the Sacred Heart in New York, New Jersey, to even some of the work that you're working on now. Can you, does it, does it come in or does it come from just reflections from life during those meditation times?
0: Um, no, it doesn't actually come directly from the meditations, but it is a way of, uh, looking at human nature and um, just trying to pull uh, parts and pieces from religious experience from uh, you know how other people walk through life. Some of the work is inspired by um, just stories in the news sure. and and in particular, the um, most recent piece, Lead Us Not Into Temptation,
1: yeah.
0: is a, um, it's a three-part piece that was based on my reaction to the child sexual sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Yeah. So that piece was taken directly from um, a human story, mm. um, many humans. Um, and, and then Sort of transcribed into uh, this other material form, so one of the things that I do is I do a tremendous amount of research on each project that I work on yes and through and just through personal experiences as well and um I research those topics um, and then uh, I just sort of let the information kind of wash over me and from that, I look at materials to use. I like to have a certain authenticity of materials to storyline and um, so I use things like um, uh, the shape of the tunics are similar to Cossacks that priests wear. Yes. Um, the uh, beeswax that I use to coat the tunics um, reminded me of the beeswax candles from Catholic rituals.
1: Sure.
0: Um, and then the iconic kind of image of um, hair shirts that ascetics uh, use to create personal discomfort as a way of um, sort of making themselves uh, appear to have piety and, and sure. religious respect. Um, sort of a self-abuse kind of situation. Mm. So I looked at that, I researched all of that and the materials used in that. And um, I created these uh, pieces where rather than the hair of the hair shirt being on the inside to cause discomfort, the hair is on the outside and Mm. it's very long and it's um, sort of an auburn color and um, it's very dramatic so my interpretation is that the um the hair is on the outside so they're not causing discomfort but they're creating this dramatic effect that um that someone might be uh seen as um being you know sort of exaggerated um very pious look at all this hair you know yeah. very dramatic kind of setting And, um, that's, you know, that's how I, I took to the, uh, to the project. So So it's it's sort of a reverse hair shirt. Sure.
2: Sure. I, uh, I love that. I, I, I think of, um, yeah, just that scandal itself, you know, me coming from a Catholic background, left the Catholic church and then that scandal comes out and then I'm like, okay, where, where am I with this faith? (laughs) You know? Um, and so challenged love. I love, thank God the darkness has come to light, like get this junk out, you know? And and so I think of the flipping of the shirt as almost like the darkness coming to light.
0: Yeah, that I've never thought of it that way, but that's very interesting. Um, the, uh, in the research that I was doing, you know it was diff- it was difficult research absolutely so it took me a longer period of time to get this project finished cuz i'd have to stop and work on something else for a while sure and sure. that happens um you know there's sort of a grotesque quality to the the finished work um as there was a grotesque quality to doing the research
2: sure sure and so and really you've created an experience uh really an installation with this work so it's something yeah, to yeah it's
0: through. it's freestanding and um so the the pieces are um on these freestanding stanchions mm-hmm. and then there's a circle of rock salt that goes on the ground outside of the um the the triptych the three pieces uh that represents you know the idea of uh us now having a way to be protected yeah from what has happened within the circle
2: sure sure very powerful i i, I think it's 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 uh interesting to think of um yeah just kind of all these intimate um i say what's just people's experiences that have kind of come directly into the news, you know, the darkness coming to light, whether it's, right. you know, Me Too movement, um, systemic racism, whatever it is, all those, all that content, people's stories just being like headlines. And oh, my goodness, like the, the junk it, it brings up for people with similar, like similar experiences, but how important it is to deal with. And I love the idea of this like hedge of protection. Okay, you've seen it. This is what was going on in the inner mm-hmm. circle. The darkness is here present mm-hmm. deal with it see it and you know you as the artist still kind of want pro- to protect even people what your experiences as you're doing this research like I've done some of that research myself and I'm like the right. rabbit the rabbit hole goes so dark and so wide and it, uh, it takes my breath away yeah. and so think of you protecting us with that salt little it just it's kind of a nice gesture <laughs> You know? Yeah,
0: some of some of the projects are, are pretty intense, but then um and then they on the flip side um it's important to to sort of feed me with more optimistic things. Sure. Um I have a piece, the piece that's in uh, France right now, um that you probably saw a rendition of it. In two thousand and nine, and that's the butterfly kimono. Yes, that was installed in that beautiful space at the end of the gallery. Yeah, um, I was literally climbing up scaffolding to <laughs> to hang that, that um, awesome. to hang that piece. Um, that is a, a human scale kimono, so it's it's you know four feet by four feet. It's not a huge piece but off of it are these monofilament strands with butterflies stationed on them. Um, That piece was inspired, actually inspired by a French fairy tale. I found an old book um, in a used bookstore and it was, um, it was all different French fairy tales that had been um, translated into English. Mm. And I was reading this once, I just sort of opened the book and started reading it. And there was this one story of a a mother who was pregnant. Her husband had died and she was living in the woods alone with a handmaid, um, you know, someone that was uh, another woman that was helping to look out for her. And she was pregnant. Um, the, The The mother was pregnant and she was sweeping her front step one day and there was a big toad sitting on the sidewalk and she booted the toad to the side with her foot. Well, the toad turned out to be the evil fairy and the evil fairy cursed her and um, cursed her and her child. And when the child was born, he was born with hair all over his body. And so the the little boy grew up in the woods and he was afraid to go to town because he was very kind hearted and he didn't want to scare anyone. As the story goes on, you find out that the cure for this curse is uh, for him to find his one true love and that um, her love will override the curse. Mm -hmm. So as the story goes, he eventually meets his one true love And the curse, there's a transformation and the curse is being lifted. And the fairy that's making the transformation rides into the storyline in a um, carriage with um, wearing in a carriage being uh, driven by larks, by little birds in a cloak of butterfly wings and it was just such a vivid um visual description that i i i said that i wanted to bring that into material form and then the questions start what materials am i going to use sure. how is that going to happen and um i was talking to a lot of um a lot of different people about um you know, the whole idea, how do you make something look like it's floating in space? Yeah. What materials do you use to create illusion? And um, I had originally thought of doing this long train and how was I going to do that? And then somebody said to me, well, what if you just took the, the strings from the long train and started to sort of put them around? And that sparked the whole idea of uh, in the installation, the kimono is suspended from the ceiling, but then hundreds of strands come out from the kimono and I thread the butterflies onto the monofilament and then a tiny little piece of museum wax holds the butterfly in place. And it looks like um, an explosion of butterflies some flying in and some flying out, so it creates yeah. this whole. And that was a very joyful piece to do. Sure, sure.
1: wow! It's, because it's,
0: of the inspiration was so naive, just through this fairy tale kind of story, yeah. and then um, you know solving the problems for the installation, how it's going to look, how it's going to be suspended, how it's. Um, Does the storyline call for it to look like it's floating or with the um, lead us not into temptation? The pieces are on stanchions. They're very grounded. They're, you know, right in front of you. They're solid. Mm -hmm. This piece is very ephemeral and it's sort of floating away. So materials and problem solving and all of that is sort of the engine behind how how the idea takes place material form
2: i love it i love that you don't shy away from installation which can be so intimidating <laughs> but it's, but it's such a powerful art form when it's, when it's done really well and that's definitely something i've admired in your work is is the power of installation even even in how you show have show smaller pieces in groups or this is it's the mindset of an installation artist and i always appreciated that about what I, what I saw of your work, and even as you curate your website and things, I'm like, oh, here's the installation artist at work, <laughs> um, dabbling in installation. Was, I th- I think if I had a whole nother life, <laughs> that would, well, I would I go that, that would, way all the time.
0: The work of yours that I saw was an installation. <laughs>
2: yes, yes, and that was definitely where I went in my MFA work. You know, conversations with the pavarello which was so much about these experiences, and and literally it was shown in the woods because of the desire for installation.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah
2: yeah and i i but I love it and it's it's powerful and i I think you are definitely successful at that and i i I don't know if i'm I'm reading into this, but the horse hair you know it sounds like the curse from that story too, as it's I
0: great. was telling you the story it it came together for me um and hair has all of its own connotations, yes. and you know um so maybe in the back of my mind that was you know.
2: Sorry, my daughter just dropped it. Aww,
0: <laughs> beautiful artwork.
2: <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I was had to no lower problem. a kiss as we see each other in this recording. <laughs> I was like, let you know what's going on behind the scenes.
0: Well, I guess having the window lets them know you're, you know, they can see Still
2: you Still
1: here. At <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
0: No problem. Um, so, yeah, so um, materials matter, you know. Yeah, yeah. Materials well, matter what you use and what it brings to the um the storyline so i I use lots of different materials
2: yeah did you meet drew brown when you were at william patterson professor no uh so interesting he he's also installation artist um you know he, he but he describes the moment he found he was so much into materials but he would just go to thrift stores and work with you know found objects a lot and he describes the moment when he found um, the set of plates that he grew up eating on, you know. And, oh, wow. And, and, and he believes, and I believe he's right, it wasn't too far from his childhood home that their thrift store was. He believes it was actually the, the plates that he ate on as a child. Um, wow. So his, his, just describing that experience, the importance of objects, materials. Um, you know, I, I don't think people always understand Duchamp's ready-mades and things. And I don't even know if Duchamp thinks of it as most as profoundly as we do, but the the power of objects. You know, um, I'm sh- I'm sure eventually he thought that, but in the early days it was just kind of like I'm doing this thing to mess with the art world. <laughs> but the the power of objects, and even my friend uh, Mike Crockford, who's another artist, just at his at his mother's um, you know wake, he took out the bowl that he ate in. It was just like beat up old bowl, and he talked about the power of the objects of his, and he had all these objects from his mother's life. And they can
0: really be transcendent.
2: Exactly. And that's the word I, that's the The word I I dropped it in your um, intro uh, as a point of topic to remember to talk about for, as a note for me, the word transcendence, this idea of transcendence. Yeah. The objects having that built in, but also what you're really creating, which is a lot of content that transcends time, transcends the object itself. You know, we're looking at a bookmaking project, but at the same time, um, it's goes beyond the book. It's not about bookmaking yeah. anymore. It's not about If process. you're lucky.
0: Sure, if you're that's lucky. <laughs> if you're if you if your work is authentic and um uh, not that you not that being nostalgic is a bad thing, but there's a way to um create a different kind of transcendence that's maybe more universal. um, Everyone is going to respond to your work in a different way. Um, And for them, it may be the nostalgic uh, dinner plate, you know, that kind of thing. But if you're, if you're really successful um, at what you're doing, it, it goes beyond that, you know, it, it, it's not just a specific moment in time, but sort of a universal understanding of um, culturally what that plate meant. Mm. Um, It probably timelines him, what, what the pattern was, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it is, it does um, create a, our, our, it, it hits on our connection to objects yeah and um, and and what those objects symbolize
2: sure that's great it's great and so the materials you choose the eat from down to the the type of wax you know yeah uh, it just it seems to be so thoughtful and i I think uh research you know it's something that artists do all the time but don't always know how to articulate so I love how well you articulate that just now it's Something I tell all my students: like you have an idea, you know what you like. Now let's research that thing, that content, to where you understand it a hundred percent. Let's see other people have created that way. Let's see, like what's the historical stories that come up when you type in your topic online? Mm. It's amazing what the internet can do for us in terms of research as artists. Um,
0: yeah, it's well, you know, many many rabbit holes. You yes. know,
2: <laughs> and you get um, you get stuck, in then I'm sure <laughs> it's like yeah, no. and
0: and and a real. Um, Time sponge. Sometimes, um, eventually, okay. you have to get up and make the work. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but there are some really wonderful rabbit holes you can go down and and kind of bookmark for a new for another idea. Yeah, well, that's Stacks it. of research.
2: So you do know. You, do you find? I know you know you know the backstory to your pieces. Um, sometimes you want to inform your audience of those backstories. Um, do you find yourself in dilemma like? Okay, how much should I admit your title can do a lot? I know that yeah. that's definitely the artist's trick. The artist statement could do even more. Um, do you feel like you at times have desired to have the you know attachment for lack of a better term to your piece that like lets people know the the fairy tale that you're basing it on, or do you do you feel like you need to admit that or
0: um, not, not no, so not always, and it yeah. depends on who who i'm talking with. Um, hopefully yeah. there's enough of a um you know i I don't know if if you have the same reaction, but when you're describing your work to someone, I usually have um a basic um you know a basic storyline of what the work is about, sure and then I sort of assess whether or not I need to say anything more you know yeah, if somebody yeah. is like you understands what it is to put artwork together um and you know the kind of uh, far-reaching, crazier kinds of ways that you can find your way to an idea, we can have that conversation. But, um, you know, other people, I'd rather just give them a more universal understanding of what the piece is about. To me, the piece is about, in a universal sense, Mm -hmm. it's not just the Catholic Church, you know, that has these kinds of problems. So
1: um,
0: I talk about, you know, that most um i would say every um organized religion has a certain amount of um, h- hypocrisy that happens within sure, and, i sure. mean hypocr- hypocrisy within the catholic church is actually even a line of study yeah, you know
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a line of study so um you know it, it's not just the catholic church i'm presenting it in um in visual form through um, characteristics of the Catholic church, but it, you know, it happens in other religions. So my uh, fondest hope is that um, I can create a universal understanding of a situation of something in human nature, of a problem, of a, um, you know, a simple twist of fate or something that happens within human nature yeah. where I can present it in, in a way that um, the most people can understand what it is I'm trying to do. Sure. And then if, if, um, if someone wants me to talk to them more about it specifically, I'm, I'm happy to do that.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I, th- I, you know, this, this, I you know, the, the art, art world. Making art, you want to have some sense of this drama, right? To even the juxtaposition of like this institution, the church, claiming piety and holiness, and then in contrast, this deep, dark, evil thing going on. Um, I think that's for sure. This these evils happen way outside religion as well, as we know, uh, mm-hmm. horribly. But it's always this. I think the the media will do this easily, where it's like, okay, this thing that you trusted shouldn't be trusted. Okay. Um whether that's schools, education, whatever it is i i as an artist i i I think we do the same thing where we want we 'll take that dramatic kind of topic, but there's a much more of a human context and human story that a media can 't do media like its if it bleeds, it leads that kind of thing right. these horrible stories like we 're going to get ratings blah blah blah, but as an artist, and I know that you have the sensitivity and empathy there's a desire to you know, tell that story with uh, just the complexity that it is, you know, uh, full on, you know, this horrible thing, full on, you know, this, this reality, there's a there's a truth to all these backstories. But then right. you're trying to create like an emotional truth experience, like, all right, here's the truth. It's guttural, it's raw, I'm gonna put it into your face with like, kind of the, the visceral, like, texture like just I think of the texture of cotton people have a hard time with the texture of horse hair even more if you if you ever touched horse hair um especially if it was a shirt um being this like almost torturous experience but putting it out it's like uh right away reactionary just a reaction and at the
1: same time there's this like uh a sense of of uh Kind of beautiful material in the midst of like this
2: torturous material mm-hmm. um this uh as you say a, a desire for some sort of hope in the story is at mm-hmm. present as well and this is the complexities of, of art throughout time i feel like it's this is the success of your work too is like art history has complete mayhem built into it as well the art pieces that we revel in and, and revere often have these crazy backstories or like the commissions are kind of corrupt or whatever it is or the artists sneaking in their own personal messages all those things but i love that it's a a art art in general is a form that we can take that dramatic story the one-liner but complex it you know Mm -hmm. make it admit its complexity admit its um admit the critique as well as the uh Interpret as you will. Like, here's my direct critique. I'm going to throw it out there. Of course, this evil that has happened to Catholic Church, I'm calling you out, which so many people have done. Thank God. It's like mm. so important. But at the same time, allowing for people to have their own experience with your work where you're not going to tell them every little thing you're thinking. About.
0: Yeah, there's, oh. there's always room for, um, for interpretation. But when you, walk in, when you walk up to the piece, um there is a grotesque quality to it the idea of the hair and and the connotations of hair and Mm. um uh, but you can always look a little bit deeper and try to um i don't think it would be a piece you would walk away from not wanting to understand what it was about
1: yeah yeah.
0: so i think people would and that's the um intimate curiosity that a handmade book can create or a um an installation. Um, I tend to work in, um, in human scale. So that's why the kimono was human scale. The, um, the tunics are, are human scale. Um, You know, there's something about um, the relatability of it being um, human, a human story with human scale.
2: Do you you I don't, I don't remember this or not. Your, your pieces are very, um, it's a delicate is a good word too. There's like detailed and deli- there's like so much material there. Do you have, have you had the experience where you've made pieces that you welcome people to touch? I know that's a, a vulnerable um, question.
0: No, I mean, I let people touch my, my books. Yeah. Um,
2: Connect, that also connect the human connection there, even if yeah. it's this is a human yeah, they're, connection.
0: They're they're mostly handheld sized, you know. Yeah. They're not um I haven't made, you know, a large book or um it's this idea of intimate curiosity that I like to um have people experience. So um no, and and um you know it's 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 a very the work is very tactile. You almost want to touch it. You know, Um, it's not fragile. I carried um, the kimono to France in a, in a, um, uh, a suitor. (laughs) And um, when I got on the plane, I said, is there anywhere that you can hang this? They said, no, you're going to have to put it in the overhead compartment. Oh boy. And um, it's not fragile, but, when I got to France I spent a lot of time straightening out all the <laughs> the butterflies. And then I had a whole I had a whole kit with replacement butterflies uh. in case any any <laughs> of them just couldn't be used anymore. That's good. And then w- when I got to the paper mill, um I actually took some of their paper and I had brought some of the um the uh linocut stamps that I use, for, that I've made for of the butterflies, I brought them with me nice. with ink, and I made butterflies from their paper because they still have a a functioning paper mill. Wow! And so their paper was included in awesome. uh, in the installation.
2: I love it. Yeah, anybody who's who's making paper as an art form will fully understand this <laughs> the, the the collaboration of yeah. you you with your your mark and their their art form, the paper itself. Yeah. Pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. I have made handmade paper, uh, myself, but for this project, I used, um, uh, Japanese paper that I purchased. Um, and I purchased it, I purchased it on rolls. So the, uh, butterflies for the kimono are Japanese paper and then the tunics, the tunics for lead us not into temptation. Are also made from Japanese paper. It's very strong. Yeah,
1: it's great. Well, very. Cool. And
0: um, even though it was hand sewn and the tunics were hand sewn and not sewn on a machine, I needed that strength for turning seams inside out and, sure, and that sure. kind of thing. So I'm very interested in successful materials to use in in any project.
2: That's great. That's great. Yeah. So you think about the durability as well as. Yeah possible transport on planes and overhead
1: cameras right right <laughs>
2: like all right i'm bringing extra materials just in case i need to repair that's awesome well very cool so how do you how do you start this whole life as an artist do you, you doing stuff as a little kid were your parents bringing you to museums where how did this begin for you
0: you know um i was always you know I was always considered a very creative kid. And I think the earliest um, introduction I had to making things was sewing. And my my mom taught me to sew and, you know, for special occasions, we would, you know, make our own clothes. And I just loved the idea of taking something flat and making it into a three-dimensional form.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: and i grew up in um in a small new jersey town where we just kind of left in the morning and played in the woods and came back for dinner you know that was the preferred so I, way to raise kids back then
2: that's how i grew up too
0: yeah and it, i was in a fortunately in a very safe area and um and i could do that and we would build tree forts and just you know use our imagination yeah. So that's how I started out and then um I you know as I went through school I went to a college prep school like you did and um back then they didn't we had art history and art appreciation with all the slides. Yeah. Um but I didn't really have a concrete um art upbringing, you know. Yeah. I didn't it wasn't really anything concrete and then when I was in college I was studying social work so it wasn't until I uh, was working as a social worker when I came back from school and uh, I started taking ceramic classes at night at Raritan Valley Community College and I ended up being there as a night student and then um, uh, for a period of time I was laid off by the state when they when I got riffed and um, uh they had to um reduce the forces so um yeah. i i started working in the studio during the day but that was that was my real beginning of any kind of concrete art training and then yeah. i did that for a really long period of time and uh and then slowly moved away from ceramics um and i think it was because i needed to work with something that was a little more immediate you know yeah. Um, ceramics you're going through several different technical processes before you get your end result so discovering paper um and printmaking was was good for the way I was moving with my artwork and the way I was starting to think so it really wasn't until I was out of college that um I actually had the opportunity to start working in the arts nice.
2: now uh in terms of uh when you were working on jewelry, you were trying to make a go of like a little commercial endeavor or least...
0: i did I thought you know I need to be a real grown up about this, and I need <laughs> to um uh make an income and make it work and um I did it for a long time and it was it was successful um, but um it's it's kind of like being in the circus when you're out doing a a trade show uh every weekend sure. you know basically um it's um it's quite an interesting way to live and um uh setting up your display and taking it down and and uh doing a lot of that uh on my own once in a while i would have someone that would come and and work with me um you know i was learning a new skill too i was uh jewelry design is is a very kind of specific way of working and um yeah so i did that and um at the time i was leaving that um no actually at the time i was coming into that i was work i had left social work and i was working for a a food exporter and um also trying to be a grown up and having a real job yeah. you know um we were uh exporting food to the middle east that's what i was doing so yeah. i was doing that and i was um my husband had started his business and i was answering phones for his company and i was trying to start my own business so yeah. that was like um a very very busy time of life
1: sure
0: and um And then I was able to eventually leave the food exporting job and do, um, the jewelry business full-time while Tom got his, his company off the ground and, um, and started, uh, you know, started, you know, that started to become more successful. So, um, yeah, I would, uh, I would come home from a show and I would make, um, Jewelry pieces and home accessories um, all week. And then I would go back out on the road and do uh,
2: Took over shows. your life. Took over your some life. Some wholesale,
0: <laughs> some retail. Yeah. Uh, and I did that again for 10 years. Okay. And then um, I made the switch to that in, uh, I don't know what year that was, but um, I made the switch and started doing work that was more meaningful to me
2: sure Or would you uh, say those 10 years you didn't really make the meaningful stuff for yourself
0: no i didn't have time
2: yeah you're just working as a
0: i was just thinking you know i'd be working how could i
2: do this how can i get a little cash (laughs) taking
0: notes you know what would i do if i could do that you know
2: you were you were um, researching and doing all the things you do as an artist but for another purpose
0: (laughs) yeah keeping notes you know um drawings things like that so yeah and that was that was a real turning point and um you know i am i can't believe i'm lucky enough to to do this every day so that's
2: great so yeah full-time foreign artist. you know making not commissioned work but the work that you really you know, yeah from your heart and believe you should make and that's awesome
0: yeah that's that's where i am now
2: that's great. So I, in terms of support, like, I, you know, I just I know that you're kind of inroad to early shows was where I saw you at William Patterson. A lot of universities have hosted your work. And uh, are you represented by a gallery or are you just kind
0: no, of made, find not. your way? I'm not. I, um, I've had work in galleries. Um, uh, what I concentrated on for a number of years was um, the artist books and getting them out into collections. Yeah. And and that, I feel like they have a whole other life of their own now that they're out there, because yeah. um, many of them are colleges and institutions that believe in sharing the work as a way of educating new artists. So yeah. um, that, that was really important to me. I yeah. really like yeah. the idea that they're not <laughs> sitting somewhere, uh, never being looked at again. That's great. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, I have, um, I have thought about uh, galleries, but I've just never really gone in that direction.
2: Yes, it's interesting. So your work, you have shows, you know, paper mills, you have shows, it's like so cool. So it's like all your loves in terms of material, that's part of how you're showing your work as well as... Um, just academic institutions, which hints your research. You know this desire for seeing the the academic life of an artist. You know, it's it's uh, as being an art educator, that the word academic gets turned out around a lot. As okay, the academic courses, math and English and history and science, and then the elective classes, which I know <laughs> that's what we are. Um, yeah, but, but but never, I I said, yeah, I got my MFA. I think I have more education than anyone. <laughs> Um if, if this is an academic, I don't know what it is in terms of art. Well, most,
0: most artists are entre, are entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. y- you have to be, I, I had a conversation with someone, I was at a printmaking conference and I had a conversation with someone, you know, I said that, um, uh, you know, it's interesting at this printmaking conference, a lot of these young people, they come to it and they're, um, there's portfolio days where they show their work and then all of the um, colleges and universities that have um, or all the universities that have master's programs walk through the portfolio and they try to get the young person to come into the MFA program. And the idea is that, you know, they'll get their MFA and then they can teach and um, they'll have an academic life and they'll make their own artwork on the side and, yeah. But the truth is that somebody really has to die before a position opens up in yeah, academia.
1: Absolutely. So
0: I was having this conversation and I said isn't it a little, a little disingenuous to to only talk to these kids about MFA programs? And the person I was talking to who I really respect said when you choose to be an artist you're choosing a lifestyle. And that you have to make that life lifestyle work for you. And that could be, you know, setting up your life in a way that, um, gives you time to, uh, gives you downtime to do the work or working in a setting where it gives you the opportunity to do some research or, you know, um, finding a way where, um, you can rent your apartment out in the summer and go somewhere else and have another experience, you know? So it's, it's, it's making your own choices and not waiting for someone to die for you to get a position as something other than an adjunct. And, you know, this whole idea of academia shifting to adjuncts teaching makes life really difficult for so many people because it's working three or four different institutions and traveling distances and, and really not getting paid very much at all. So.
2: yeah, I I think those days it might be done. It's, it's these, so many teachers, even wonderful professors who were nearly part-time, but still considered adjuncts. And then uh, rumors of right-sizing institutions and cutting full-time art, historian teacher positions is, is out there. Um, and this is kind of a trend in, in education too. Um, I, I think there's, there's much, there's, there's much to be said about that. <laughs> we could go there, but there's <laughs>
0: much to be said. And then there's also, um, taking, taking things into your own hands and, yeah. you know, they've said during the pandemic, more artwork has sold over the internet than ever before. Yeah. So there's opportunity out there um, that's just different. It's just different from what maybe you thought you were going to be doing. Yeah. You know.
2: And I I think that's what it it comes down to. I remember being in college and being the only person I knew because my friends weren't art majors who didn't have time. Like I was always making art. And I'm like, I would just close my door as my friends had like a party in the living room. I'm just like, close it. And I would be painting an oil painting or whatever I was doing. And it is this choice to admit, you know, that you need to create to stay sane. And that's going to be part of your life. I it's, it's not something that really goes away. Part of this podcast is trying to figure out how people have navigated that. You know, right. <laughs> and it's, it's nice right. that that you've gotten the, the opportunity to really forge ahead and make it your full time life um, integrated into kind of your life. Um,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm I, very I'm, grateful for that.
2: And, and on so, some are you level, hearing
0: my cat meowing? Is that it's, coming it's,
2: through? Yeah, don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> this is the, the the reality of our lives. We have cats to take care of. As my kids have been knocking on doors, can I have your phone? They're making a <laughs> film, I think, right now. Um, but the idea, on on some level, we choose it. You know, it's uh, and I chose a pretty traditional path in terms of being a public school educator. But that the coolest thing, and what nobody told you as those MFA programs are trying to recruit you, is like. You don't need an MFA. You could be a, a public school art teacher, and you're encouraged as well to make your art on the side and <laughs> be a researcher. It's like all like yeah. it's just it's so important that I am a, a creator as an educator of the arts because I don't think I would be jazzed to teach it every day unless I. I was it probably doing
0: makes it. you a better teacher, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, I, I hope so, and I think I think it it is definitely like days where I did not get enough sleep. And if that was for any reason but art making, that's problematic. Where I'm a little cranky. But if I was yeah. staying up to make a painting or something, I'd be like, "Oh, guys, check out what I made!" <laughs> and they're all like, "Oh, you do that too?" Because I'm the photo teacher, and I'm like, "Yeah, that this is what I, I do on the side." And and it's uh, and it always I you know I, I said I don't need caffeine. I said this to my student the other day because they're all drinking caffeine at like age 16. I'm like, "No, you just have to you just have to do what you love." Like, yeah, why caffeine is this podcast my caffeine is um going on a hike with my kids my caffeine is like you know us making a movie with you know just cheesy plots my kids come up with like whatever
0: yeah it is all about <laughs> how you think about things yeah you know and how you yeah what you're going to buy into and what you're not and what you're going to let stress you out and what, what you're not and yeah yeah and that's choices level,
2: yeah that's it and then some of the like making decisions to deal with like those life stressors, like, you know, benefits and car insurance and house. Like if I could just get those out of the way, then I have, then I can take care of uh, creating and making art and creating. And on some level, I didn't realize what I was doing when I chose the pretty traditional path, but it, it allowed me to, um, steal hours and create in a manner that was stress-free and encouraging to the rest of my life my kids know me as a creator my students know me as a creator um and the people i'm interviewing uh, often they they do have these day jobs and it's like okay this is what i do but but i go home and i'm immediately writing a song you know it's like this and and the song is improved by the job (laughs) because they have this experience of life you know and um and telling that that story, the working the working man's story, the working woman's story. Um, yeah,
0: um, it's you know, I had um, an aunt who was working as an artist as I was growing up, and she showed me it was possible.
1: Yeah. And
0: good. that it was a it was something you could choose to do.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I just had to wait until I had certain things kind of sorted out before it became um you know a full time thing
2: yeah i th- i think what happens too like as you're doing that 10 years of entrepreneur I'm going to make jewelry and go to these shows it's almost a distraction to you as an artist on some level my students who have gone into commercial art world art making right now about 10 years in that I, I just did an interview she's like yeah I'm, i I want to get out i want a normal job that i can pay the bills with and then i can make my art again because yeah. i'm working yeah. 80 hours a week doing commercial commissions or doing work that I know is gonna sell, I'm just burnt out. <laughs> so it's almost like the promise of commercial industry is a burnout industry for a a fine a person who wants to make fine art. You know, I think it's a hard. I've heard
0: that a lot.
2: A hard I've sell. heard that a
0: lot. People, you know, choose to go into graphic design because it's, it's a career yeah. decision. Um but it's um yeah, a lot of people move away from it because it's not, it's not feeding their own, their own soul for what they really want to do. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think yeah, people <clears throat> as as they maintain these other, other lives besides their like you know nine to five it's, it, things like Instagram, like they're posting their art every day because it's like you know, it's, and it's it's actually as you say, there's platforms, you know, there's platforms to sell. I I don't know about the NFT world, but that's a whole another art world that. I don't know. Do you know about this? It's a, a, a electronic original. I'm just starting original. to hear I'm about like, it. Oh, what do I do? I have the. Is someone else going to make an NFT of my paintings? <laughs> so we might I'm have to get on. I'm just starting
0: honest. to hear about it, and I know very little. But um, yeah, or no, even it's...
2: like P- Patreon, like this is a artist support page. Like people just donate money so that you can you have the right because they believe in your work so much. They might own your work, they might not. They just love what you're doing. So like, hey, here's five bucks a month just so you can make more art. <laughs> it's like so cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's great. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's keeping things alive, you know? Um, And it's, it comes from the GoFundMe mindset and and the Kickstarter mindset. And, um, you know, and, and if you're a non-creative, it's, Good to see someone working creatively i would think that would be rewarding too
2: yeah i think uh, yeah they said uh artists were on the bottom of the list of essential workers during the pandemic but everybody was going to art as their means of like <laughs> sanc san- <laughs> like some sort of sanctuary like music and writing and you know uh painting drawing whatever people were more than ever taking stimulus money and supporting artists and so there's there's this kind of like uh world world right now desperate for admitting that culture is created by art (laughs) by creative people and let's support them because this is what's going to be left behind
0: yeah yeah yeah, it's it's true um art art is definitely underappreciated for the benefits that it can have to a society and culturally it's um uh and you know definitely needs to be supported. Nice.
2: Well, I'd love to hear what you're working on now and how we can follow you in your world of art making.
0: Um, what I'm working on now is um, my great aunt was a um, Catholic nun, and she was a missionary in China, 1941 to 1951. So she was there during the communist takeover. Now, I've been working on this book for quite a while um, because my original idea was to um, put her her stay in China in context what was happening historically. Wow. So there have been many rabbit holes I've gone down in doing this. It's, it's actually been quite a while. Um, and I've been just making book structure maquettes and, and um, samples to look at, At structure and how it could relate to the story um but it's a it's you know it's such a fascinating story um she was 40 when she went so um and i think that um for women at the time uh nuns were allowed a certain amount of um privilege um in terms of education and in terms of um, travel and things like that. So um, she, you know, she left Convent Station, New Jersey, and ended up in Wanling, China. And um, it was night and day from where she came from. And I have her, uh, she would write a letter home, and my grandfather's my great grandfather's secretary would retype the um no actually my my grandfather's uh, secretary would retype the letters uh and copy them um so they could be distributed to other family members so people could read her letters from china so i have a collection of her letters almost from the whole time she was there so the book will end up being um a visual story of of that journey um excerpts from her letters and um photographs from the um from the records I went to the um archives at the College of St Elizabeth and they had quite a bit of artifacts and and um background story so that's what I'm working on now um I'm I've been uh considering the um, medieval book structure as a structure I might use as being sort of a
1: a, a type of
0: book that has connotations towards religion. So, um, so that's what I've been fooling around with. I'm getting ready to do another um, series of uh, monoprints and, um, yeah, and that, that takes up my time. So. That's
1: good. Yeah, all well,
2: that printmaking world is a whole other thing. I know that for the Printmaking Center in New Jersey you're part of. And you
1: know, Yeah, that's
0: become, uh, uh, it's called Frontline Arts now. Yes. And it was, um, the Printmaking Center was running a program called Combat Paper, which was a program for veterans, and they've sort of switched. So now Combat Paper, Frontline Arts is has the printmaking oh, wow. center as a program.
1: That's cool.
0: So you can still go in and print and use all of the equipment, but the, um, the focus has become on um, turning um, decommissioned uniforms into paper. And wow. then the veterans tell their story on that paper. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't realize. Yeah, And they actually just did a scrubs project for fr- okay. uh, frontline workers that's great. Um, during the pandemic. so they turn scrubs into um uh into paper
1: that's great all right
0: so um yeah so um i'm on instagram if anyone wants to find me there it's um liz mitchell 3551 okay and um yeah and my website is um www.lizmitchellfinearts.com all right so if anyone wants to see what's up
2: awesome well we'll definitely keep that going and i'll link directly to your your uh your links as just mentioned on this episode at the stolen hours podcast.com and yeah well, and and thank you so much for doing this i guess your cats want to see you Thanks for listening to this
1: The Stolen Hours Podcast!
2: Alright, thank you for listening to another episode of The Stolen Hours. Liz Mitchell, a great artist. You definitely should keep checking out and seeing what she's up to. So, keep following along her world. Um, the That exhibition that's in France right now is uh, continue will continue to be up um, all the way through the end of 2021, which is great. So, it's at the Moulin our moulin du Gât paper mill in St. Leonard-du-Nobla France <laughs> in France so <laughs> I'm sure I did not say that right but you know, tried Anyway, beyond that uh, next, next week we have uh, episode 28 which will be with Deborah Frizzell who is a uh, art historian an art professor art hist- history professor a writer, curator she's done so many different things so looking forward to that to share with you and support this community of creatives on The Stolen Hours at thestolenhourspodcast.com and on Instagram,
1: same name, and listen and check out Jay Agnish's music.